Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and I am here with super producer Alex for another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Alex, how are you? Hello, Miss Tracy. Thanks for having me aboard today. Now, um, you've been doing some research on Flava Flav lately. Not that I would admit publicly, no. No, but here we are doing it. So, uh... <laughs> so in our last episode, we were struggling to remember the name of the hype man from the band Public Enemy back in the 80s. Uh, and Flava Flav is his name. It, was uh, he in Public Enemy? And then he went out on his own? Yeah. And, uh, and so, well, I don't know if he went out on his own. I, I can't imagine that would work out well for him but his trademarks were you know some of the ridiculous things that he would yell kind of in the background of the outtakes of the music and the fact that he always wore a clock around his neck like a big wall clock around his neck he always knew what time it is okay well this is going to continue our our little research project into into 90s rappers but okay so so you know who's more famous than flavor flav who edward snowden i was going to go with vanilla ice but okay yeah, Have well, that way. too, that too. Okay, Edward Snowden, here's the deal. I got to talk to Tom Simon, who searched Edward Snowden's house in Hawaii the day he disappeared. Oh, no kidding. And yeah. Edward Snowden is, well, why don't you tell us who Edward Snowden is? Well, he worked for the NSA, the National Security Administration, and he yeah. got a little bit, um, I don't know if it was disgruntled or... He seems to have an air of uh, contempt about him, mm-hmm. and he released a bunch of secrets to Russia and the world. So, and how did he release those secrets? He he had the files, so I don't know exactly how he did it, but he definitely emailed WikiLeaks. them somewhere. He WikiLeaked them. Wiki WikiLeaked it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, basically, you know, info on probably most of us now the Russians have, and um, and where is Edward Snowden today? Well, he's in Russia somewhere. Yeah. I don't know if he's still living in the airport or what he was doing. He was living in the airport for a long time because they wouldn't officially let him in Russia. Mm-hmm. But then he couldn't really go back to the States because they're going to they're going to nab him. Yeah. So he is still in Russia. And I remember seeing something about it a few months ago uh, that it was an anniversary of something or another in that regard. But, yeah, he's still over there in Russia and no chance of us getting him back anytime soon. No, probably not. <laughs> and anyway, but Tom Simon, who. um a uh, former uh, FBI, he went in and searched Snowden's house. And what did he find? Tell me he found something. He said he didn't find that much. Snowden was really prepped for this whole thing. He was really prepped for the whole thing. So he didn't find that much, but he'll tell us what he did find. But he's also going to talk about a lot of other fraud that he has dealt with, mm-hmm. including, did you know that that when some of these financial guys that end up in uh, prison for fraud. They'll actually run Ponzi schemes inside of prison. There's a whole economy that goes on inside prison. Really? See, yeah. I don't know how safe it would be to be running a whole bunch of Ponzi schemes with felons in prison. Well, it, he gets their families in on it. He's going to talk all about that. It's fascinating. This oh, interview is super cool. Yeah. That's got to be tricky stuff. Well, let's go check out the interview. 
Yeah, let's go. And then, of course, we'll have more on 90s rappers as it becomes available. But right now, Edward Snowden and what was his house like? Let's go find out from Tom. (laughs) Let's do. (laughs) It's Tracy, and I am back with what I know is going to be a fascinating interview on truth, lies, and cover-ups. I got retired FBI agent Tom Simon in the house. How are you, Tom? Oh, Tracy, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, great. Now, let me tell you how we met is um, I saw a little Facebook video that you did and I went, I don't know this guy. I need to know him. And so I reached out and here we are now. So uh, thanks for not thinking I'm a crazy stalker person. Well, the the algorithm worked. I'm so glad we had a chance to meet and, and have a chance to talk to your audience. Oh, yeah. So um, you, now you were focused on financial fraud primarily, or, or I mean, correct me, jump in. Tell, tell, tell me about your background a little bit. Okay, I, uh, I'm a CPA by trade, right? So okay. the FBI doesn't hire people like me because we're fun to be around. And I became I became an agent in 1995, and throughout uh-huh. the course of my career, I worked a wide variety of crimes, but primarily financial crimes. Mm-hmm. And um, so the um, embezzlements, investment frauds, things like that were sort of the core. But every now and then, I got uh, sidetracked on uh, on you know murder cases that you know were federal in nature, counterterrorism public corruption, things like that. So I had a pretty diverse career. And then I retired in 2021 after 26 years of being an agent. And now I'm a private investigator in Florida with a specialty in financial crime matters and fraud matters. Wow. Okay. So let's jump in. Um, Craziest case you've worked on? Craziest case. I mean, that's the thing with fraud cases that they don't necessarily lend themselves to like craziness. But I had an interesting case involving... um, a gentleman by the name of Perry Griggs, who did a Ponzi scheme and ended up in prison for it. While he was in prison, he ran another Ponzi scheme from inside the prison walls, ripping off, ripping off the family members of fellow inmates. And so okay. let's talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about this because so, OK, I was in I like to ski. I'm out here in Colorado. I was in a, a, a gondola up in Vail. Right. And, you know. Vail's a nice place. So people with a lot of money come to Vail. And I met a fella who claimed that he invented or supported or something like there's a like like almost like a PayPal system for people behind bars. And I did not realize that there's a whole economy that goes on in there uh, with like, like like a separate, almost like a separate financial system a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about that and then how that led to a Ponzi scheme? Well, again, I, unlike you, Tracy, I've never served time in prison, so I'm not really familiar unlike with me. <laughs> this particular case, though, was um, this guy was using his wife outside the prison to handle the money. And so- okay. What he would do is encourage the prisoners to go out and get have their family members get cash out mortgages um, to uh, to fund investments. Then the money would go to his wife, and then he claimed to be a commodities trader, and he claimed he was entering in the trades from with a smuggled laptop inside the prison to make these people, you know, extreme uh, extremely wealthy. But in fact, he was just uh, it was a Ponzi scheme, or any returns that were paid to the victims were being paid using the money from previous and current investors sure. as opposed to any income producing activity. Uh, meanwhile, his wife was living pretty high off the hog, and then he got out of prison and he was enjoying the proceeds until they ran out of money and then they they uh, fled and I ended up catching them in Arizona um a, a while later after we indicted him and found a got a warrant for his arrest. Now, okay, two questions rise up there. 
how would someone and maybe you know because I, I don't know anything about this how would someone smuggle a laptop into prison and keep it under wraps because that's like yeah. it's kind of big like i can understand like a phone right well keeping my white collar crime prisons a little different than like rikers island right okay so, so these white collar crime prisons are often work camps where you have like jobs this particular prison where he was in a nellis air force base in las vegas and, he, and so he's being supervised by military personnel uh, for a construction project. The um, His wife is giving gifts to the guards and the Bureau of Prisons officials throughout the course of his stay for them to kind of look the other way. And he basically set up shop at a warehouse um, on the base where he was supposed to be working construction matters to uh, to kind of handle his commodities trading. But he didn't really, really do much commodities trading. He was It was just a, a pure Ponzi scheme. Wow. Okay. So how much, how much does it like, how how much is a gift to get someone to look the other way? Do you know? I think he bought one guy, one of the guards, a truck. Um, oh. And, uh, and so it was, it, I mean, it wasn't like the riches of the Orient, as I recall, it, uh -huh. it, the, the money he was paying to the people who were supposed to be watching him was, was minimal. And mostly he was just sort of impressing them with, with what a high, uh, high roller he was. And uh -huh. uh, he was a con man, which meant he was very good at, yeah. at instilling confidence in him when he would speak to people. And he also claimed to be a millionaire commodities trader sitting in prison for some money laundering or tax activity. Because uh -huh. when you're in prison, you don't have to disclose truth to the people you're around what actually got you there so you're able to kind of invent your own legend right right oh wow okay so then when you go to catch him like were you there at the moment y'all nabbed him or or where I, I was you? in Honolulu at the time which is where a lot of the victims were which is why I got the case uh -huh. I was able to locate him through um we had some intelligence as far as what his what cell phone number he was doing while he was on the run uh -huh. with his wife and uh and I used a sophisticated investigative technique to to trace that cell phone number I Googled the number, Tracy, and it came back to an ad on Craigslist saying, uh -huh. we'll, we'll paint your house for cash. Call Zed at this phone number in Kingman, Arizona. Uh -huh. and I dispatched agents to Kingman, Arizona, because we had a local office there who did an undercover uh, uh, sting on him where they called the number and asked him to go paint the local motel. And he showed up at the end. You know, a guy shows up at the motel. Turned out it was a, uh, a guy he was living with. And then they squeezed that guy. And, uh, and he told us where uh, Perry Griggs was living. And then the agents went and arrested him and then sent him to Hawaii where I, I met him and, and, and interviewed him in Hawaii. Oh, wow. Okay. So then on the interviews that you do, and this is, this is kind of my, more of my zone is, okay, the body language of deception. So did he, was he straight with you? What did he say? Like, how did all that go down? Yeah, yeah. So the interview, um, there's there's two ways we interview subjects. One is sort of a more traditional interrogation where we're kind of leaning into them. The other is what we call a proffer interview. And, and what that is, is after the person's been charged and it looks like you're headed toward a guilty plea, in order to kind of give them acceptance of responsibility, which is a discount in the federal sentencing guidelines, uh -huh. we ask for a proffer interview. And that's where they sit down and they tell us everything that happened with the understanding that none of what they tell us is going to be used against them in court. It's solely oh. to give the agents a better idea as to what happened in the crime and how this occurred and make sure we got it right. And so this was a proffer interview. He understood the terms of that interview and, and he only gets in trouble if he lies during that interview. So I didn't need to use any of the psychological techniques that you would use in your yeah. career, I would use in mine to kind of break him and get him to tell me the truth because he was pretty transparent about how it all went down, uh -huh. as, was, as was his wife during her interview. Wow. Now, uh so so you you ended up with both of them 
Yeah, they were both charged because she was uh, facilitating the fraud uh, and by handling all the money and he was handling all the basically the marketing inside Uh the prison, convincing the prisoners to have their family members liquidate their assets to give to him. Huh. Okay, so he had to go back to prison then. But how yeah. how long of a sentence? Because I think his second I think his second sentence was upwards of ten years, oh, if wow. I recall correctly. And and he had to serve that one in a supermax in Terre Haute, Indiana. And uh-huh. so very restrictive prison where he would have none of the freedoms that he enjoyed the first time around. Wow. Wow. Okay. So um what were we how long were you in Honolulu? I was in Honolulu for 2009 to 2016. So I served seven years there as an agent. Uh I started in Chicago and then Honolulu and I finished up here in Florida. Well, my husband, uh, he, he's very wary because I, I like to go to Hawaii as much as I can. And every now and then I'll get a speaking event over there. He's like, you cannot go to, uh, Honolulu on a Wednesday night. He goes, you cannot like any, anytime on Wednesday, he goes, there's, there's horrible crimes. They're only happen on Wednesday. He said, he said, I've been I've been watching this new news show, Hawaii Five O. And Honolulu is probably the most uh, probably the safest big city in America as far as violent street crime. I mean, there's really nowhere you can walk around where you'd have to fear being jumped. Yeah, I've I've never never felt that way there. Uh, there's a lot of a financial lot of- crime, but and and and, and property crimes, uh, mm-hmm. car break-ins, house break-ins, stuff like that. But but they're um they're they're not a local populace there that's likely to stick a gun in your ear and stick you up. Now, there's a lot of trouble, and I don't know if you got into this, like the mob kind of runs the ports is what I heard. No, false. No. Uh, I mean, no, there's no, the, the organized crime has never gotten a hold on uh, on in, in Honolulu. Uh, unions run the ports uh-huh. and, there's, and you know, there's certainly been some corruption in the unions, but it's not organized crime the way you would see in New York or Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay, so so what... What what kind of stuff did you find over there mostly? The crime wise, yeah, a lot of financial crimes. Uh-huh. Uh, the um, there are trusting people, and so uh, and a lot of people go there to rip off the local populace, and so the financial crimes and frauds there were pretty robust. That was my, you know, that was kind of my thing. Uh, the drug crimes were all meth related. Um, meth seems to be the drug of choice there, much yep. more so than like crack cocaine or anything like that. Uh, organized crime wise, it's again, their organized crime, their version of organized crime bears no resemblance to other cities in the US organized crime, but really? it's, it's really gambling focused. Um, yeah. A lot of bookies, a lot of backroom casinos, a lot of Chinatown type stuff. And, um, uh, but again, it's not, it's organized crime, but it's, there's no, there's no structure to it the way there is otherwise. It's not like five families. And the Japanese Yakuza has never been able to get a foothold in Hawaii. Um, and so, um, it's that, and so then you, so you get the drug crimes. What else? You get three or four bank robberies a year. Uh-huh. You get weird crimes where, like, you know, someone will, you know, on the you get military based crimes, right? There's a lot of that going mm-hmm. on there where, and you get like, you know, rapes and, and murders and stuff on the military base. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really for the FBI, it's a national security town because there's so much a giant military presence with. Yeah. Some real high technology there. That's where Snowden was when he stole all those secrets. Um, oh, that's right. He was there. Did yeah, you ever did, bump did the, into I, that guy? I did the search on his house after. I didn't know him socially, but I did the search of his house. Oh, really? Uh, the day he was arrested. And, or not, not the day he was arrested. The day he disappeared and went on 60 Minutes. Um, oh, my. Okay. So, so, okay. Let's yeah. talk about that because yeah. that is pretty um, interesting. So, you did the search on his house because he, he, he was gone. And- right. So he disappears with his girlfriend um, after stealing just a boatload of secrets from his job at the NSA in mm-hmm. Honolulu. 
in uh, or Oahu. It was kind of in the in not in Honolulu proper. Right. And um, and then we find out that he is um been cooperating with journalist Glenn Greenwald while he was holed up in Hong Kong initially. And that the uh, and I believe the a newspaper article came out that morning and there was going to be an interview. I thought it was 60 minutes um, conducted by Greenwald uh, that night. It was uh-huh. a Sunday, Sunday night. And so we got a warrant to go search his place to see if there were any top secret stolen materials lying around his house, uh-huh. which there weren't. He'd pretty much cleared out. So, it, I mean, my and again, it wasn't my case. I was just one of the unskilled laborers they had there from the uh-huh. FBI doing the search itself. So I don't want to oversell myself as an expert in the case. Well, but, uh, let's let, let's talk about it. Let's talk. Yeah, about it. OK, yeah. so um, I've never talked to anyone who's like searched someone's house. I've talked to people who have had their house searched. Mm-hmm. But what's the protocol for that? How does that come together? Because, you don't. I mean, I know everything gets kind of turned turned over um in 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 like search through and like it's not a neat and orderly process um if i would just i would disagree with that it's a very okay well if if, if if you're the homeowner <laughs> i think it's very invasive but what's your perspective invasive but it's not we're not trashing the place uh-huh. it never happens we take in we take entry photos before we uh begin the search and then exit photos more often than not we leave the place better off than we found it like boys really yeah okay I'm getting a lot of trouble for trashing a place. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's not, okay. I've heard different stories, but anyway, but just, um, what, what, what do you do first when you go into some, I mean, you take the pictures. Okay. But what do you well, First you get a warrant, right? So okay. we're not just searching people's houses randomly. You get a warrant that there's probable cause to believe a crime has been committed and evidence mm-hmm. that crime is in the place you want to search. Okay. And, uh, once the judge signs off on that warrant, you knock on the door. And mm-hmm. uh, in hopefully the person's home, you let them know you have a warrant to search the place. Then you go in, you clear the place to make sure it's safe and that there's no one hiding in a closet with a gun ready to right. pull your head off. Mm-hmm. And then usually we have, a, then the next thing that happens is we clear the place out. A photographer goes in to photograph every room. So we have the before pictures. And then a sketch artist goes in to kind of draw the floor plan of what's going on and kind of label the rooms. This is room number one. This is room number two. Huh. And then we systematically go through and search the areas of the house where the items were named in the warrant could possibly be hidden, right? So if I'm looking for papers, that pretty much opens the door to look in every drawer. Yeah. If I'm looking for a Buick, then I can't go looking in a drawer because a Buick can't be hidden in a drawer. Uh-huh. And um, and then you go through, you systematically search everything, you take the evidence, you log the evidence, you photograph the evidence, then you clean up, uh, you put everything back where you found it, you take exit photographs, you leave a copy of the warrant with a receipt of what was taken at that warrant with the homeowner, you shake huh. their hand, thank them very nicely, and then you turn around and leave. Huh. Wow. So then what was Snowden's house like? Was he like a neat and orderly kind of guy or? Yeah, I mean, there was nothing special about the inside of his house. It looked like Uh any other house, you know, occupied by like a 27 year old guy. Um, Uh um, He pretty much cleared out like, you know, like there's some clothing left, but he he packed his bags, you know, some books on the bookshelves. It wasn't like trashed or anything like that. And and, but he didn't leave any of the uh, the, any secret materials behind. So. Uh It was um, as a search, it was pretty benign and, and it wasn't like there was any drama or action involved with the search because we're searching a place that a guy had moved out from. Right, right. Um, so then where is Snowden now? Do we know? Is he's in Moscow. Know? He's in Moscow. It, oh, OK. So yeah, he, he went heard... from Hong Kong to Moscow and he's had kind of safe harbor in Russia um, there for uh, you know a long time now. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, nearly a decade, I think. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure if he got out of the airport or what happened. Yeah, so. no, he 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 flew like any citizen could because at the time we didn't know there was an issue uh-huh. to Hong Kong, and then went from Hong Kong to Moscow, 
and he's been living in Moscow ever since. Uh huh. Wow. Okay. So, uh, other interesting cases you've worked on, or or investigations you've done, or anything surprising? Uh, I'm trying to think. I just don't know what you would consider surprising. I was pretty much just a benign fraud agent most of my uh -huh. career. I worked, you know, instead of working giant like uh, cases, I worked, you know, hundreds of smaller cases with losses between, you know, fifty thousand and a million. Uh -huh. Um, and uh, I was a guy who dealt in volume. And then uh, as a result of that, what happens is you get very good at doing interviews and interrogations. And mm -hmm. so I was, I began getting brought in on other people's cases, like, you know, murder cases and stuff to handle the interviews and interrogations to get the confessions. And so now let's, let's, let's talk about that because I recently, um, cause I, you know, I've done some interviewing and things, but I, I recently had a chance to do a read course. So, um, and they have their own, techniques what what's your favorite uh technique or or did you have like a system to get yeah a uh confession let's talk about that yeah the fbi um uses basically an adapted version of the read method okay. um and so you know after you moran if the person's in custody then you mirandize them mm -hmm. and the fbi uses a written miranda form where they have to sign off on that but if they're not in custody uh your custody and they're free to leave and the and they understand that then you don't need to mirandize them a lot of uh -huh. people don't understand that and then you uh, kind of just go into the facts of the case, ask them the direct questions about mm -hmm. what, uh, you know, what they did or didn't do, what happened. And then uh, then you try to then you explain to them, if assuming you have the evidence that they actually did the crime, that you are, in fact, aware that they did the crime, but you're not aware of how why they did it. And there's many good reasons why someone may have done this. There's many bad reasons why someone may have done this. Mm -hmm. I like to narrow it down to two choices. Did you steal the money because you wanted to gamble, party, and use drugs, Tracy? Mm -hmm. Or did you steal the money because you had fallen into some real economic problems and you wanted to help your family? It's one or the other, Tracy. And then mm -hmm. what you generally then is pick the least of the least awful of those two options. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I would try to understand exactly what your rationale was for why you committed the crime, what the motive was. Mm -hmm. I would explain that I'm not, I, we know that you did it. The evidence shows that. What I don't understand is why. And there's a big difference as far as why. Sometimes people are monsters. Sometimes people have understandable reasons why they would have stolen money. And mm -hmm. most normal people who don't see themselves as the villain in their own life story will always take the least of the two awful options and say that they stole the money for, um, you know, to help their families. And mm -hmm. so at that point, they've confessed to actually stealing the money, which is all you really cared about to begin with. Mm -hmm. Now, what about this whole concept of that, that you hear about sometimes of like saying things that aren't true in order to get them to admit to something that they did? What's your take on that? Or have you used that? Talk about that. Sure. I, I mean, I've made the evidence look better than it is. And I've made uh -huh. the certainty of what we know um, more, I, I've re-emphasized that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, listen, it, it's entirely clear to us based on evidence I can't discuss with you that you've done this crime. Um, but what we don't know is why. And, you know, you always turn toward the motive. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, um, yeah, there's, there's nothing illegitimate about that or coercive. Mm -hmm. Now, um, what's the longest that it's ever taken you to get a confession? I, I never had one of these cases that you read about these nightmare cases where like the police are interrogating someone for like 12 hours. Yeah. That seems like it could get very coercive. Mm -hmm. I think that I, you know, the longest interrogation I've ever done probably took no more than an hour. I mean, oh, really? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's if you're good at it and the people are truly guilty mm -hmm. um, and you explain to them why you know what you know and, uh, and you, 
you know, solicit from them that you understand that they are not in fact a bad person, Mm -hmm. but they got wrapped up in the circumstances of their lives. That's going to resonate with nearly everybody from, from from killers to embezzlers. So, Mm -hmm. um, so it never really took me long and I would be uncomfortable if it was taking me that long, then I'm either doing something wrong or I'm making assumptions about this person that aren't accurate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, some of the murder cases that, that you've worked on? Same thing, just about an hour or uh, how, or less. How did... Yeah, an hour would be a long time. Like oh. that would be because, you know, an interview is a dialogue an interrogation is oh. a monologue. An interrogation right. is me talking and saying, Tracy, I need you to be quiet and listen to what I have to say. I've listened mm-hmm. to what you have to say. It's your time to listen to me. And then I begin talking. And, 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 and so I had a case where a guy threw his girlfriend off a cruise ship balcony to her death. And wow. Was, and there was no real great physical evidence in the case. Um, but I laid it out for him that, um, that you know, that we, there was no video or anything like that. And so the whole thing relied on me getting the confession from him. And uh, but it made no but his story about what that she was sitting on the balcony on the railing of the balcony and just happened to fall back to her death made no sense to me. It was not a it was not a railing that anybody in their right minds would sit on. Uh-huh. And so I asked her, I asked him, I said, listen, um, I said, you know, w- you know, what you're saying doesn't make sense. There's no way on God's green earth she would have sat on this railing. And, you know, what I think happened is there was an argument between you. And uh-huh. uh, I understand that couples can get into arguments. And I also understand that um, that sometimes you know women can drive you crazy and, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and can push you push you beyond the edge, yeah. and that they need to own some responsibility for pushing a guy to the edge. I believe none of this, by the way, Tracy, but I'm uh-huh. trying to empathize with the guy. Right. And I say, listen, I once had a case where a guy took out an insurance policy on his wife and brought her on the cruise for the sole purpose of throwing her off that balcony to her death so he could collect the money. Mm-hmm. That guy's a monster. And I said, well, Eric, that was his name. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you and I don't think you're a monster. I don't think you're a bad person, but I do think that some things happen that now, if you could go back in time, you do quite a bit differently. Uh-huh. And what I think happened in this case is you got into an argument and during that argument, it got physical. And, and when it got physical, she ended up getting uh, going over that railing because maybe things got out of hand. Maybe it had too much to drink. I don't think this was premeditated. I don't think you took this cruise mm-hmm. with the purpose of killing her. And I said, Eric, I need to ask you straight up. Did you go on this cruise with the purpose of killing her? And he said, mm-hmm. no. And I said, was this just a fight that got out of hand? And he said, yes. Mm-hmm. And so we backed up and we kind of walked through what occurred until he told me that he grabbed her by her throat, uh-huh. lifted her up and threw her over the balcony to her death. Yikes. Wow. Okay. See, but again, that whole process took my monologue was 10 minutes tops. Uh-huh. And so it's, it's more of a situation where I'm leveraging his conscience rather than kind of beating him down. Again, mm-hmm. what I'm saying is I want to understand, sir, what happened because I don't think you're a bad guy because no one thinks they are a bad guy. Right. Um, wow. Uh, and that's, and that's very uh, textbook like read ish with like empathizing with them. So any other interesting like cases that, that you, that are popping into your head where you've done a similar um, technique? Embezzlements are all, I, I grew up, my my first six years were bank embezzlements. And so mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of like bank tellers who helped themselves to the till and bank managers mm-hmm. who committed fraud. And so with them, it was a lot more like shooting fish in a barrel because they're not seasoned criminals. And, uh, and you really just focus on what, you know, you have to sit before the interview and think, what's my theme going to be during this interrogation? What's mm-hmm. the 
and, and it's always going to be intense financial pressure, right? That's why right. they're they're not stealing so they could like kind of pad their 401k. They're stealing because they feel intense financial pressure. Sometimes that's due to a vice, right? Gambling, girlfriend, okay. whatever. Sometimes that's due to just excessive credit card debt. And mm-hmm. so once you sort of understand what your theme is, then you can kind of go into the interrogation under the embezzlement case and talk about how, um, how you know, that you, that There's two different ways people do this, Tracy. Either you stole money so you could party and have a great time, or Mm -hmm. you stole money because you had gotten yourself into a financial scrape. And uh, and and I think you you know and and to take care of your family. And what kind of monster would you be if you didn't want to take care of your family? Mm -hmm. And so you get them to that point and say you did this because you wanted to take care of your family, didn't you, Tracy? And Mm -hmm. then they usually look at their feet and then uh, then go yeah. Okay, let's take a step back and talk about that because I want to understand what your rationale. Was. Oh, the other thing you'd always tell an embezzler, and I did this a lot, was um, you intended to pay the money back. That's a huge thing. Yeah. When you took when you took this money, you weren't really stealing it. You were kind of borrowing it, right? You intended to pay this money back. Had had you gone to Vegas and made a fortune in Vegas, you would have slipped that money back into the till and no one would have known. Was that sort of the plan? Is that either you were more just borrowing the money rather than stealing it? And they're always like, Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you, you can get there. And so you know, I worked you know, hundred plus embezzlement cases mm-hmm. where, uh, where that was the theme in the interrogation and, and getting them to confess was fairly easy. So. Wow. Um, okay. So, so what kind of cases are you working on now? Is it mostly fraud type stuff or? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a private investigator now. Mm-hmm. And so my clients, um, I have an investment, I have several investment fraud clients. A lot of my clients want me to, if it's a corporate embezzlement client, they want me to kind of put together the case and present it to my former colleagues at the FBI in a more coherent oh. manner than they could do. Mm-hmm. So the FBI could take it from there. Oftentimes the board of directors of these companies who hire me, they want to gain an understanding as to what happened so they can put in internal controls right. and, uh, and, and uh, so it won't happen again. Um Investment fraud cases. A lot of people want me to follow the money and find out what happens. I'm working a uh, a theft case right now where um, where someone burglarized a home and got like two million dollars in gold from that. And so I'm uh, I'm I found out who did it, and now I'm tracing to find out um, how they spent that money and how we could perhaps recover some of that money. And so well, you do a bit of that. Let's, let's, let's talk about that real quick. And since you're working on it currently, you probably can't say a whole lot. But yeah, I need to be vague about that because yeah, still okay. So we can be vague, but let's just like what if if you don't actually know who did it, what's your first step in a case like that? All right, so um, you you talk to the people who had access to the house, uh-huh. right? This particular house had some construction going on, and so I talked to the contractors uh, because we're dealing with a, um, a a a asset that's not spendable, like you know, gold right. coins. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to figure out how one could liquidate that, and so I, I literally spent a lot of time driving around, knocking on doors to cash for gold places. And oh, really? Out, yeah, and so you know, maybe a hundred of them for like a week's worth of time until wow. I found a, found a place where the gold had been sold. Find out who find out who actually pawned the gold, mm-hmm. and then begin kind of reverse engineering. You know, was that the person the thief or was that person a fence? And then you begin confronting the suspects. Uh huh. Wow. Well, that one's going to be interesting how it turns out it sounds like you're on to the under the scent so yeah we'll get um there. yeah um any other interesting cases or or um maybe even like ways people can protect themselves because you probably see trends in the things that that you've investigated and and uh and, and, and worked on 
Sure. I would say the most common embezzlement that I see from a corporation is really unsophisticated. It's literally when an accountant just steals the checkbook and begins writing checks to themselves or sending wire transfers to themselves or ACHs, and then just covers it up in the accounting records. And, uh, and you know, it makes it look like something else. And so that's, I mean, I would say 90% of embezzlements are that simple as mm -hmm. far as the execution goes. And every single one of them is a failure of internal controls at that company. Mm -hmm. uh, every company out there should have what they call segregation of duties, where the person who yep. has access to the funds, whether that's the bank account via wires or mm -hmm. even the checkbook, <laughs> should be a different person than handles the accounting records, mm -hmm. and a different person than the one who is approving uh, payments going out. If companies, no matter how small they are, segregate those duties between two different employees, it would require collusion between those employees for them to successfully steal money that way. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the biggest safeguard I would do, I would say. Mm -hmm. On the investment fraud side, it's really just a question of risk and reward. Every single case I've ever worked on the investment side, the people are being promised higher than average rates of return coupled with lower than average risk. Uh -huh. And so, and that's not the way investments work, right? Like right. I, can, I can double your money at the roulette table, but there's a tremendous amount of risk that you're going to lose your money. Or I can make sure you don't lose a penny and you're going to get 1% in your savings account or CD. And sure. so that's the way investments work in real life. And so what I do in these investment fraud cases is I uh, get my hands on the bad guy's bank account information, usually mm -hmm. from a subpoena, and um, and I begin comparing what happened to the actual money. And I compare that side by side with what did they tell the victims they would do with that money. Mm -hmm. If I told you I was going to invest your money in cryptocurrency, but instead I'm investing your money in lottery tickets and at the roulette table, there's a good bit of distance between those two things. Right. And the distance between those two things is the quality of the evidence in my case. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the, <laughs> the quality of the evidence. So um, like, dig into that just briefly when, when you say like, the, is that just because one has records to it and the others? No, because I'm not, a, I'm not the bad investment police. If I told okay. you I'm going to invest your money in stock and I invest your money in stocks and I lose your money, you have not been defrauded, Tracy, right. you took the risk on an investment. Mm -hmm. However, if I tell you I'm going to invest your money in stocks and I go out and buy some silly cryptocurrency right. and lose it that way, you have every right to say, help, help, I've been defrauded, Tom. Right. This guy ripped me off. Mm -hmm. He did something very different with my money than what he told me he was going to do. Sure. Uh -huh. And the distance between those two things of what you were told and what actually happened to your money is going to be what gives a case jury appeal and eventually uh, tricks a, a, a trips a guilty plea from the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, ha have you gotten involved in any of the crypto uh, fraud going on lately? Sure. Or yeah. I, a lot of my uh, more so on the private side than the FBI side. I mean, I'm a cryptocurrency skeptic. I think it's all garbage. Yeah, me way. too. Anyone who touches that stuff with a 10-foot pole deserves to go broke, uh -huh. but my clients don't see it that way, so they're happy to hire me to make the cases when they get ripped off. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. Okay. So how can people get a hold of you? Because clearly you know what you're doing, and um, I think you're kind of like a pit bull <laughs> as far as like what what you're going to – the the results that, that you're going to get for, for people who may be a victim of, of fraud. My website is simoninvestigations.com. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. From there, you can find my phone number and my email. And and uh, if you go to at Simon Investigations on any social media platform, you can find hundreds and hundreds of videos of me discussing my case cases and giving tips on how to avoid fraud and, and how to not be victimized.
Right. And, and the Facebook uh, shorts, and I'm sure you're on TikTok and all that, uh, are re- are are good. They're good to listen to. That's how we got acquainted. So make sure that you're, that you're looking those up uh, for everybody listening. And um, Tom, thank you so much for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Well, thank you for having me on, Tracy. This has been fun. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time. Love me better than you. (laughs) All right, let's do this next one before we really go off the rails. Okay.